Well, good morning. This morning, we're going to be talking out of Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 23. And I've titled this Preparation for the Ethnic Groups. Now, a few words of introduction. At this point in the development of the ecclesia in the book of Acts, the gospel is still not yet clearly understood. There are at least four issues blocking the early apostles and the disciples in the ecclesia from understanding the gospel of grace based on the certain revelation that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. These four interrelated but distinct issues were total depravity. They really didn't understand that. The role of works in salvation, and coupled to that, the role of Judaism in salvation. And finally, they didn't understand the multi-ethnic nature of salvation. The first ecclesia still didn't understand a major lesson from the Old Testament about the depth of the fallen condition of mankind. Probably, arguably, one of the greatest lessons, if not the greatest lesson of the Old Testament was total depravity. Now, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus should have clarified this, but his early followers didn't understand that. This means they didn't really get total depravity, and therefore they defaulted to thinking that they could work their way into right standing with God. Now, given total depravity, humans should know that works can never be efficacious to make mankind righteous and therefore acceptable with God, but they didn't get total depravity, so they didn't see it. The first disciples should have understood total depravity, both from the record of the fall in Genesis 3 and the Jewish sacrificial system, which never had a final sacrifice. In other words, the sacrifice for sin never was complete. This meant that the Jewish system was fundamentally flawed. And we know it was flawed, not because the system, but because of man. Man could not, in and of himself, completely, perfectly obey the law. That was the flaw. And Paul talks about it that in detail in Galatians chapter 3. Now, the multi-ethnic nature of salvation should have been clear from the Abrahamic promise. Jesus was the seed of Abraham who fulfilled God's promise. The blessing of the Abrahamic promise was justification by faith in Christ alone. Again, referencing Galatians 3 for that. The blessing was for all ethnicities. There is no ethnic discrimination in the efficacy of the work of Christ in reconciling man to God. However, notwithstanding Jesus' explicit statements to his apostles in Matthew 28 and again in Acts 1.8, and the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, the ecclesia and the apostles did not understand this truth. They continued to think that salvation was not only from the Jews, but it was exclusively for the Jews. So the inclusion of the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 surprised everyone. And in Acts 10, now we're going to have the inclusion of all ethnicities into the people of God. At this point, at the beginning of Acts 10, Peter doesn't really understand this. He's got a glimpse of it, but he doesn't really understand it. In fact, he will have to then experience it for himself in Acts 10. He will then explain it in Acts 11 to his fellow apostles. And then in Acts 15, there will be the first church council to really hammer out more clarity on what the gospel really is. 
In other words, what you have here is the early ecclesia growing with a lot of error in its thinking about the gospel. Ultimately, the Apostle Paul in the epistles to the Galatians and Romans would clarify these points, these points of confusion. The fallen condition of mankind, total depravity. Romans chapter 1 uh, through ver chapter 3 clarifies this without equivocation. The role of works in the gospel and the, the role of Jews in the meta-narrative will be clarified. And finally, the inclusion of all ethnicities into the people of God, that is going to be clarified here in Acts chapter 10. So let's dig in and see what the Holy Spirit has to say in this great chapter. Cornelius' vision, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him in awe, he said, what is it, Lord? Then the angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, Simon, the tanner, was probably not a Jew. He might have been, but I would say probably not because it would really be kind of an unclean vocation to be a tanner. So Simon Peter is there with Simon the tanner, who was, uh, when the angel spoke to him, those, when the angel had spoke to him and had gone, he, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius is now sent a soldier and two of his household servants to Joppa, which is about 39 miles away, to, to get Peter, to hear what Peter has to say. So Cornelius was a Roman military leader in the city of Caesarea, which means severed. That's interesting that Caesarea means severed. Uh, it's also the root of Caesarean section. Uh, those of you familiar with that, uh, uh, that terminology and the birth of a baby. Uh, there were two cities in the Middle East named Caesarea, one in Lebanon and one on the Mediterranean coast, about 30 mile, 39 miles north of Joppa. The one mentioned in Acts 10 is believed to be the latter. And one commentator said of Caesarea on the Mediterranean that it had a magnificent harbor and conferred upon it the name of Caesarea in honor of Augustus Caesar. It was a residence of Roman leaders and the majority of its inhabitants were Greeks. So it was largely a Gentile city. Cornelius, which means of a horn, which appears in Scripture, only acts in Acts 10. In other words, Cornelius does not appear anyplace else in Scripture except Acts 10. As a Roman military leader, he commanded 100 soldiers, probably from Italy, and therefore they were probably the most loyal soldiers. It's very likely that these soldiers were considered special forces. And it's possible that Cornelius was very highly regarded and favored among military leaders because he was given the best soldiers. Spiritually, Cornelius was devout and feared God, which is very interesting that a pagan who did not know the Lord would be called that. 
These two internal traits were expressed by two external practices. That is charitable deeds for the Jewish people. Remember, this is probably a Gentile city with some Jewish remnant there. And it's those Jewish people he is extending mercy toward. And he has a devotion to prayer. He's praying to the God that he doesn't even know. The only thing that he would know would be what would be revealed in general revelation about God and whatever the Jewish people may have taught him about the Old Testament. So he's got very limited revelation, but he's doing some really good things with it. Cornelius was a man of integrity. That's amazing for a pagan to be considered a man of integrity. A person's inner and outer conversations are congruent. That's what it means to be a person of integrity. So in a fallen world, this could only happen through common grace. Mankind in his natural state of bondage to sin is a hypocrite. Mankind knows that God exists but denies it. That's exactly what Romans 1 verse 32 tells us, which is why we know there's really no such thing as an atheist. Anyone claiming to be an atheist is lying to you and lying to themselves. Now let's look at Peter's vision. Cornelius had a vision and Peter has a vision, very interestingly, and about and they are connected. You will see that God is very sovereign, intentional, and strategic about how he operates, and he's orchestrating these events in Acts 10. These are not random events. These are examples of God's control over his creation, of how he's working out his meta narrative. So let's look at Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open in an object that resembled a large sheet. That word large there, megas. We get the word megan, for example, uh, or mega, which means great. It's this large sheet. It may have been like a sail. Uh, this was a seacoast town. They would have understood a big sheet as a sail. Coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. That word four corners, RK, we know RK is the starting point. Uh, the scripture says Jesus is the RK of creation. He's the starting point. He's the foundation. He's the anchor. So it's interesting he's using this anchor here, the same word he would use in referencing Christ in Christ's role in the universe. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles and earth and the birds of the sky. This was a big sheet. This is a big object. A voice said to him, we don't know what voice it is, whether it's the spirit or an angel, said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure or ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. The sovereign, intentional, strategic nature of God is revealed in verse 9. As Cornelius' emissaries traveled to Joppa, Peter, at the same time, went up on the roof in the middle of the day, which is probably the heat of the day. And this is a time when they actually would live on the roof. We don't do that anymore. We don't live on our roofs. But they would do that in part because there are times it would be cooler up there and they would get some fresh air and maybe some quiet time for reading and prayer, which that's what he wanted to do. 
And, but there also was the potential for heat. And we don't know what the temperature was, what the conditions were. But he gets up there and things begin to happen. These events were not random. They were divinely orchestrated to prepare Peter to receive, again, revelation of the truth that the gospel was for all ethnicities. Peter knew that. He heard that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where he's, he is, among, along with the other 10 apostles, were charged to go to all ethnicities and make disciples. So he should have connected the dots right there, but it didn't quite stick. It didn't fit his paradigm of how Christianity would be. Staying in the home of a Gentile who professionally was a tanner intimates that Peter had some level of understanding that the Jew Gentiles were okay. You see, at that point in time, it was very, very unacceptable culturally for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. That meant you didn't stay with them, you didn't share a meal with them, you didn't hardly talk to them. You talk about discrimination, big-time discrimination. But yet Peter is He's mixing it up with this Gentile, staying in the home with a tanner, which would have been unclean. And yet Peter talks about how he's never done anything that's unclean. So now Peter's on the roof. He's hungry, falls into a trance. The word trance here is the Greek word ecstasis, which means a throwing of the mind out of its normal state. It can be translated amazement or a combination of fear and wonderment. In this trance, Peter saw as if he were a spectator, an object that looked like a large sail. Uh, lowered by the four corners, these anchoring points are holding it very steady. And you've got all of these different kinds of animals in there. It looks like Noah's Ark. Like almost if you took Noah's Ark and you just opened it up, uh, it's kind of that kind of imagery. You see all kinds of creatures in there. And then the, the word comes from heaven, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter responds, no, Lord. The classic oxymoron. How can you say no, Lord? And then make a claim you've never eaten anything impure or ritually unclean. So this is at least the second, perhaps the third time that Peter has stuck his foot in the his mouth and said, no, Lord. The first time was when Jesus explained his destiny to die on the cross in Matthew 16. The second time was when he told the Lord that he would never deny him in Matthew 26. Both times, Jesus rebuked him. And one would think that Peter would begin to learn his lesson. Peter was again corrected. The voice said, what God has made clean, you must not call impure. To emphasize the point to Peter, the vision was repeated three times. Then suddenly the trance is over and Peter is perplexed. Peter's experience revealed his ensconced and erroneous view that salvation was both from the Jews and exclusively for the Jews. The truth was and is that salvation is from the Jews, but for all ethnicities. The Abrahamic promise was to all ethnicities that all, everyone, all humanity, would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And this was fulfilled in Jesus, who then charged his apostles to disciple all ethnicities and extend the blessing of justification by faith in Christ to every human being. The first recorded Gentile to receive the gospel of Jesus was the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. And notwithstanding this, the apostles still didn't fully understand that 
there was no discrimination. There's no ethnic discrimination. The body of Christ, the ecclesia, would be multi-ethnic. So they're understanding the gospel needed correction. Finally, Cornelius' emissaries find Peter, verses 17 through 23. While Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, right away the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men and said, here I am, the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. Please note here, Peter is called. Peter didn't just go, he was called. That's a big point. Peter then invited him, them in and they gave them lodging. So just a few comments on this text. Peter's experience on the roof was called a trance in verse 10, but in verse 17, it's called a vision. In verse 10, it was he was amazed. And in verse 17, he was perplexed. Cornelius' men arrived. They asked for directions to find Peter, even though they were divinely sent. God is the primary cause for all, but sovereignly chooses to use human agents. Hope you saw that. God can send you someplace, and then you may have to talk and interact with humans to get directions and guidance to fulfill your mission. Peter was deliberating on the meaning of this vision. In other words, he didn't really understand what was going on here. When the men arrived, they called for him. Now, he didn't hear them. Apparently, he didn't hear them because now it says that the Holy Spirit spoke to him. See, so the Holy Spirit chooses to speak directly. He could have just enabled Peter to hear them, but he didn't. He spoke directly to Peter and said, get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all because I have sent them. Interesting to see, we can see sometimes God directly communicates Sometimes he indirectly communicates through humans. Just like when Paul was intercepted in Acts 9, Jesus intercepted him without any human being. He was a direct interception. There was no gospel. There was no preacher. There was no altar call. There is just an encounter with Christ. Then Jesus leaves him blinded and then sends Ananias to come and not only to be the agent to facilitate healing of his blindness, but also to impart the Holy Spirit to him. So you can see how Jesus chooses to do some things directly and chooses to do other things through agents. So we have to be aware this is how God works. It always begs the question, why doesn't God always you know, speak to us directly? That would be so easy. Just... Just send us a vision, communicate to us, send us an email, send us a text, you know, whisper in our ear, but he doesn't always do that. He sometimes does that. He chooses how he will interact with us. Peter received Cornelius' emissaries. And though he's in a guest house in Simon's home, Peter invited them to stay overnight before they departed for their 39-mile journey to Caesarea. 
Now, I want to just give you one final comment here, so listen very carefully. It is interesting to note that Peter received special revelation and was sent to Cornelius. In other words, special revelation is different from general revelation. Excuse me. He received specific revelation, I should have said. Special revelation refers to revelation from Scripture. General revelation is revelation of God in creation. And specific revelation now is revelation of God to a person in a specific situation at a specific time for a specific purpose. So this is specific revelation he received about going to see Cornelius. Please note that. That's not canonical. Specific revelation has to do with what Peter needed to hear from the Lord. So the Lord obviously chose to do it that way to reinforce a lesson that Peter was not getting. He had already heard that the Gentiles were to be included several times. It was in the Old Testament, and he wasn't getting it. So now we have an intense, specific revelation here to try to get him to get this. I want you to note how different the thinking and how God functioned here from the modern mission movement of today. The modern mission movement today doesn't function like this. You see, the, the modern mission movement today presumes that mankind can choose God. And so what they do is they, they send out missionaries to go everywhere, wherever you want to go, go, as if that you can go and bear fruit. Peter didn't randomly go someplace. Peter was sent. He didn't just go. If you look at what we call the Great Commission, which is a misnomer, it's really the discipleship mandate in Matthew 28, they're told to go. So that is ascending, but you know if you're going to go sent by God, God always has a will for where you go. So you just don't go randomly. You go where you're sent. Sadly, what I see in my young people that I teach today in the Bible school where I teach is they have no concept of being sent. They think they can send themselves. So my comment to you is the degree to which the modern missions movement is built on this erroneous view of view we can randomly send ourselves is the degree to which this movement is out of order. We can only go where we are sent. That's the only way to properly see this. Now I want to give you some thoughts about the doctrine of common grace and then an application. Common grace is the gift of God that enables fallen mankind to survive and function in his religious state. It is an extension of God's forbearance that was first expressed after the fall of mankind. Were it not for common grace, the judgment on mankind for sin in the garden would have been <clears throat> fully executed immediately. But mercy was extended to Adam and Eve. Immediately they died spiritually. However, physical death was deferred. And God extended common grace to enable mankind to be able to live in God's universe separated from God. Common grace is an expression of the mercy of God extended to mankind. It is sovereignly given in varying degrees to enable mankind to exist for a time in a fallen state in a universe created and governed by a holy sovereign creator. However, common grace is not salvific. The forbearance will be lifted 
and the fullness of judgment will be executed. In the meantime, part of God's common grace is the revelation of himself in creation. You see that in Romans 9, 19, 1, 19 through 20. And this is clearly what Cornelius was responding to. In part, he may have had some revelation given to him through teaching from the Old Testament by the Jewish people. He may have had that as well, but he mostly was operating based on common grace, looking at creation. Romans 1 tells us this, what can be known about God is evident among all people because God has shown it to them. In other words, there's no such thing as a person who has not heard of God. Everyone, every human being has revelation of God. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Common grace means grace that is commonly available to all people. This grace regulates sin in varying degrees and provides limited empowerment to obey some of God's principles and therefore survive in God's universe. Keep in mind, you cannot do well in God's universe without obeying his rules. He made the universe. He made the rules by which humans function in the universe. To the degree that we obey those rules is the degree to which we have divine favor. And that's over not only those who know the Lord, but even those who don't know the Lord. Some examples of this are Proverbs 16, 26, a worker's appetite works for him because his hunger urges him on. Even a rebellious, rank rebellious person can produce some level of productive work. Or Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool is considered wise when he keeps silent, discerning when he seals his lips. You see, even a rank pagan person can show wisdom at times by keeping his mouth shut. That's common grace. Common grace is available to all regardless of his or her spiritual state. However, not everyone avails himself of this, of this gift. For example, those who suppress in unrighteousness the revelation of God in creation lose some of the common grace and are given over to two things, according to Romans 1. Hopefully you're very tuned into this because this is what's going on big time in the world today. The world is denying the existence of God denying the God as creator, denying God as the, the sovereign Lord of the universe. And that's showing up in things like the theory of evolution, no-fault divorce, abortion, homosexuality, homosexual marriage, transgenderism. All of these things are examples of how we are repressing the truth of God in unrighteousness and what happens, according to Romans 1, when you do that, is you're turned over to two things. Homosexuality, which is considered to be not the way God made sexuality to be, and deranged thinking. So sexual immorality and deranged thinking are the fruit, the evidence, and ultimately the judgment of God on people who reject the revelation of God that comes through common grace. Cornelius was a person who enjoyed the fullness of common grace. He did not suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. He embraced the truth of God. And they, therefore, he had the grace to have an, a life of integrity. He had a good heart, 
and he expressed it in his actions. His inner and outer conversations were congruent. That's what integrity means. And he was a devout, God-fearing man. But he did not know the Lord. He knew about the Lord, but he didn't know the Lord. So let me give you some traits of common grace. Number one, common grace is a maxim. That is something that's generally true. It is a gift that emanates from God's restraint of and forbearance of sin that began in the Garden of Eden. Without this forbearance, final judgment would have been immediate, and we wouldn't even exist if it weren't for common grace. We get a glimpse from time to time of what it looks like when common grace is lifted. And we get those glimpses are things like mass shootings and genocides. Number two, common grace facilitates an orderly society and allows pagans to succeed and perform rudimentary works that can align with God. You see, any, anyone can choose to try to produce, to produce productive work. Anyone can choose to try to be nice to someone else. Anyone can choose to keep their mouth shut. Those are gifts of God through common grace. Number three, for those who humble themselves under common grace, their prayers are heard. Now, this is an amazing thing, that God actually hears the prayers of pagans. But Cornelius illustrated this principle to us, that as we begin to submit to the revelation we have, God responds to that. God looks favorably on that. Number four, common grace facilitates knowing about God, but not knowing God. Mankind defaults to making fig leaves, that is performance, trying to work their way into acceptance with God. Inherently, we know we're not acceptable, and so we try to make ourselves acceptable with a righteous, holy God. But this only leads to a ritualistic approach to God. And my thesis is most people that attend the churches that I have a chance to see, and this is my anecdotal experience, I think most of them are just living ritualistic lives. They're not really living in the reality of growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ because they don't really know the Lord. They know about him, but they don't really know him. Cornelius was regarded as a devout, God-fearing man, but he expressed his religion, and he who expressed his religious convictions through the performance of charity and prayers. He's as good as you can get at practicing the revelation of common grace, but it's not efficacious. It does not produce salvation, which is the fifth point. Common grace is not salvific. God did not intervene directly with Cornelius. He did with Saul. Interesting. He dealt with Cornelius differently. He sends now an, an emissary, not only an angel to direct him, but he sends Peter to give him the gospel. And finally, common grace is limited and can be lifted. This means that one cannot build organizations, any type, with enduring favor from God based on common grace alone. Hosea 14.9 says this, let him, whoever's wise and understanding, listen. Whoever has insight, recognize this. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. You see, you can have some grace, common grace, to obey some of God's rules, but eventually you will stumble. That's why you need the special grace of Christ to give you empowerment to live a life that would please and honor the Lord.
All right, just a quick word of application here. Christ did not ethnically discriminate. Today, we're thinking and talking a lot about ethnic discrimination. We talk about it as racism, which is a, which is a misnomer. Uh, this is sad that we don't have our terms correctly, but that shows the confusion in the culture. How can fallen mankind in a state of rebellion against the creator, you know, survive in a context created and sovereignly governed by a holy, all-powerful, and all-knowing God? The answer is common grace. When Adam and Eve sinned on the garden, judgment was expressed through spiritual death immediately, but physical death was deferred. This is an expression of the love of God, extended to the human grace through the exercise of his mercy and then his forbearance. God's holiness demanded justice, but through his forbearance, the full expression of judgment for sin was deferred. For the fall, from the fall of man to the end of time, there is an integrated, sovereignly managed meta-narrative of history being revealed <clears throat> through God's plan of redemption of fallen mankind. This story explains the survival of mankind in a fallen state and reveals the progressive plan of glorifying God against a backdrop of sin and rebellion. Part of mankind's rebellion is to deny or redefine the meta-narrative. For example, those who are given to a postmodern worldview deny any meta-narrative. They believe things are just random. There's no connection of one event to the other. While others posit meta-narratives based on alternative worldviews, a current example of an alternative meta-narrative is critical race theory, a theory that it presupposes ethnic discrimination as the backdrop for all of history. Ethnic discrimination is indeed an issue, but it is not the issue. Rather, it is a symptom of the sin of fallen mankind. Because critical race theory denies the Christian meta-narrative, it fails to see the solution to the problem that it posits. The only real solution to ethnic discrimination is through the redemptive work of Jesus as Lord in Christ. In him, there's no ethnic issue because all are ontologically equal in Christ. As the Apostle Paul stated in Galatians 3.28 in these words, he said there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, there's no ethnic divide. There's no divide in terms of socioeconomic standing. There's even no gender divide. Now, he doesn't mean that in every sense, but he means it in terms of ontology. That is our being. You see, male and female are different in function. That God made them different in function, but their being is the same. The likewise Jew and Greek, they come from the same people. We all come from Adam and then through Noah. So there is not the ethnicities come out of Noah. So we are unified as a human race in Noah and then in Adam. So the truth of ontological equality is a byproduct of the redemptive meta-narrative of God. Ontological equality means that all humans are created by God, period. Furthermore, there is only one race, the human race. Paul talks about that in Acts 17, verse 26. There are multiple ethnicities, ethnic groups, but only one race. In Acts 10, the truth of ontological equality is displayed in the redemption of 
the Roman centurion named Cornelius, who through the gift of common grace was empowered to respond properly to general revelation and his faithfulness to general revelation opened the door for him to receive special revelation, which is scripture and the truth of Jesus based on the vicarious work of Jesus. Only Jesus could satisfy God's righteous requirements. It was and is great mercy to mankind that the Father accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as the basis for mankind to receive forgiveness of sins. Critical race theory does not respond to the underlying root issues of the fallen condition of all ethnicities. Christianity is the only worldview that addresses the root issue of sin in mankind and offers the only real solution to ethnic discrimination. So may we have the grace to see the truth and to live the reality of that truth in Jesus' name. Amen.